Oh, hi. It's me, Hecklina, and we're back. So I, I just want to take a second to acknowledge that song. So um, a lot of people keep bothering me about this song. This That little track goes out to, that little snippet goes out to Abe and Pip because they're always teasing me about it. But yes, welcome back to Drag Time with Hecklina. I am coming uh, to you from Reykjavik, Iceland. I'm here for Pride with Lady Bunny and Sherry Vine and some other people. And... Um, Things are kind of going forward here in, in spite of this fucking Delta variant that is bothering everybody. I'm uh, I'm staying in a little Airbnb just on the street from Bjork. And um, I'm right by the ocean. It is, it's very Icelandic, as you can imagine. We have somebody very special joining us on the podcast today. But first, I want to say thank you for every tip you are sending. They all go towards making the show happen. Find us on Venmo and Cash App as Drag Time. Or Wait, do I get tips too? Can I get tips? Oh, that's that's our special guest. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, hold on. Or you can go to our website, dragtimewithhecklina.com, and listen to past episodes or find out more about how to support us. Now, you heard the voice of our special guest. Uh, James St. James is an author, a TV personality, and an original club kid we'll go more into what that exactly that is in a minute if you don't if you're not quite sure uh the baltimore sun called his book disco bloodbath a vastly entertaining scarily well-written and horrifically funny book and i can uh, attest to that um and it was nominated for the edgar award for best true crime book of the year please give it up for the legendary james st james hi james darling how very glamorous you're in iceland that sounds like fun yeah, it is fun. You know, it's it's like everything kind of is happening right now. It's all up in the air. You know, it was going to be uh, this big show, and now they've sliced the attendance in half, and we have to oh, be. Dear. They're they're asking us to to work twice as hard for the same money. But oh, anyway. of course, of course. Well, that's uh, the, the way the, the, the way we've been doing it for forty years. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but uh, but I do love it here. Um, you're coming. You're, you're coming to us from Los Angeles. I'm, I assume. I'm in LA. Yes, I'm. I'm. I, I have a feeling we're headed toward lockdown again. Yes, things are things are looking mighty grim here. Oh no. Yeah. Lockdown or just masks or well, it, it, it right now it is masks and everything, but but I mm. have a feeling the next month or so things are, are going to take a downward spiral again. Just I I just I have a feeling we're going back to twenty twenty. Oh Jesus! I know. Well, and then of course anyway. there's the lambda the, there's the lambda variant right around the corner from that. So I mean, God oh, help God. us all. I know. Okay. Well, anyway, and starting uh, off with starting, starting off, on, off uh, with on a, on a high note. Yeah. Okay. First of all, some of our listeners don't know, and I can't even believe that this could be true. What is or what was a club kid? Uh, yeah. I mean, can you can you sum it up for us? What was a club kid? Well, I guess it was um you know uh, um a clubland movement in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, it was very much um, a response to the scene that had happened before and which was that everything was sort of uh, very codified and, and everybody was too cool for school and, and standing around in corners, you know, smoking cigarettes. And the club kids was essentially about giving the clubs back to the kids again and about letting uh, – it, it was more about – it was just about dressing up and having fun and going out and breaking rules and being anarchic and, and just uh, – just, uh, really shaking things up and um the look was very outrageous it was um it 
was a lot of drag. It was a lot of um, gender bending, which was the term at the time, non-binary, gender queer. It was a lot of um, outrageous looks. I would think that we modeled ourselves after Lee Bowery, the great Lee Bowery in London. This was a great inspiration for everyone. Um, and it included a lot of the other people from other scenes, um, you know, as far as, you know, John Saxon, Lady Bunny was, was definitely would, you know, we, we looked to her. Um, Sister Dimension, of course, was somebody we all looked to, Billy Beyond, um, in, in New York. Uh, and so it was, um, and I, it was led mostly by Michael Aleg, who was uh, a new kid on the scene at the time, who had sort of a P.T. Barnum um, philosophy uh, of showmanship and it was just it was much about creating a spectacle and it was about just sort of always making sure you were you know it was very in your face um things did get a little dark uh in as we chugged into the 90s and drugs took a hold and the scene got darker and darker and it ended uh when michael aleg the the leader of the club kids murdered his drug dealer and um slash roommate and he and a friend then dismembered the body and disposed of it and subsequently uh went to prison for years and years and years and years and years and that was what i wrote my book on i wrote my book about the sort of the the rise of the club kids disco bloodbath and um and how how it was the, the pieces of the puzzle that that sort of led to the murder of angel Mondes. And you didn't just write about it. You lived it. You were I did there. Live it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was there. I was a part of it. I was a part of um, I was a part of Clubland before I but before the club kids. I was a celebutante, which is uh, what, the, yeah. um, what, what the press had dubbed <laughs> me. And I took that and ran with it. And um, I was very, uh, I was an annoying um, <laughs> club personality. <laughs> I was um, derided very much in the press for as being famous for being famous. And um, uh, I was a Kardashian Paris Hilton <laughs> before that was the term, before they were around. You were um, an Angeline, you are the Angeline of I was New an York. Angeline, yes, yeah, yeah. And, every, and all the baggage that entails, yes. I was a nightmare, but because when the club kids came around, um, I had been around, I was sort of grandfathered into the scene, and um, I was, a, I thought, I, I sort of was there as a, as like an elder statesman character, even though I was only 21, I was considered a has-been. And, and you, um, were, you, and you were kind of, you, you kind of like wrinkled your nose up at first at, at Michael Alleg and all that I stuff. did, but mm-hmm. you know, I, well, first of all, I had a, tr- I had a crush on Kiyoki, Michael's mm-hmm. boyfriend. So I started hanging around with him just so I could be around Kiyoki. And then I sort of saw myself as, as a yin to Michael's yang. And I sort of thought that I was there to sort of balance out, uh, Michael a little bit for all his outrageousness. I was drawn to, um, how far he pushed boundaries and how far he, he, uh, you know, the, the, where he was able to go in his head. I enjoyed all of that, but I figured that I was there to temper it a little bit because he was a little rough around the edges. And so for the, uh, when the other people in the club scene came in, I was sort of the conduit in the gateway into the club kids scene that, 
I would be able to show them around and and sort of make it palatable for them. As I think is what was going on in my head. Okay, and um, yes, and it, it was all fun at first. Or I mean, to to sum it up, it was fun. It was lighthearted. It was you know irreverent. And then it and then I guess as the drugs turned darker, everything else did turn darker too. Well, you know, it's funny because I've been doing a podcast um, about nightlife in in the in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and I'm always trying to look pinpoint that one point when the eighties turned into the nineties, first of all, and when that nineties darkness took over, because as as much as the nineties were fabulous and they were fabulous in so many ways, so much of the nineties was heroin chic. It was grunge. It was deconstruction. It was, you know, Marilyn Manson and, and, and things like that, which were fabulous, but it wasn't the eighties glam, you know, everything got darker. And I wonder, I'm always trying to find out when that pivot happened, when it turned from MC hammer and delight into gangster rap and Marilyn Manson, you know? Right. And, um, I think that when that happened is also when the club scene switched and when the club kids switched from being these goofy little Halloween, you know, costumed kids to being sort of terrifying demons of the night yeah and and well i mean let's so let's let's take it back a little bit so let's talk about what your beginnings were you grew up in saginaw michigan saginaw michigan and you were you were kind of born with a silver spoon in your mouth is that true well um i my father was in Florida and my mother was in Michigan. And so I went back and forth between the two of them. My mother was, um, was very strict and it, God bless her. She, I, I lost her a few years ago. She was a wonderful, wonderful woman, but she, um, was very even keeled. And so my, my life in Michigan was very different than my life in Florida. My father, um, was, uh, I, I mean, well well off but in a way that is very different than being rich today i mean today you have to have a hundred billion dollars and you know fly to space every week um (laughs) that that's not that's not how we lived but it was very different and and so i i did have sort of a, a a yin and yang in my life then too as well with with my parents but um but yeah, I, I was in Florida and then in Michigan. And then it was I, in Michigan. I was bullied a lot as, as a teen growing up. And it was it was a, it was very hard. Um, and uh, I escaped into books and I escaped into um, fantasizing. I knew I needed to get to New York. I knew I needed to get to somewhere where, where I would have a tribe and somewhere where my people were. And I started reading about Andy Warhol and. Uh, the underground scene and underground theater and things like that. And that's where I uh, knew that I was headed. So talking about that you were, by by the time you were 21, you you were already kind of road hard and put away wet (laughs) in New York. So, I mean, you moved to New York and was it the Diane Brill, John Sex scene when you moved there? Yes, very much. Um, When I moved to New York, I had just, you know, um, hello, hello. The cars video. The cars. Okay, I remember the cars video had come out that Andy Warhol directed, and Diane Brill was in it, and John 
intersects and Constance and Ming Boss and mm-hmm. all of those people. And it was just a clarion call to me. It was like the mermaids calling to the sailors. It was, I was just, I was ready to go. I knew that that's what I want. And Diane Brill, I was going to meet Diane Brill. I was going to meet Giant Stuff. I was going to have sex with John Sex. I knew it in my head. That's just, <laughs> I went there with my with that in mind that uh-huh. they were going to be my best friends. And I think, and I've just, and I was just talking to Diane recently and I said to her, I must have just come at you like a cannonball. I must have just been like, oh my God, it's Diane Brill and you're, and you did this and you did that and my name's James and we're going to be friends, blah, blah, blah. Like, just this little 18 year old kid fresh off the truck from Saginaw, Michigan, just and as did green. She, did she say that you came at her like that or did, did she have a memory of you? <laughs> well, she, she says that when I came up to her, that it was, um, I just started chatting and I was just uh, going a million miles a minute and she's thinking in her head, do I know him? Who is this? Just, just play along, Diane, just play along. And she said, it's been like that for 30 years. Every time I see you, I just, I have to stop and think like, how, why are we friends? Uh, but I just don't think I ever gave her a shot. I just don't think I ever gave her a chance. And I remember that I, that first week I was in town, I went to NYU and I was studying experimental theater. And my first week there, there was a, I saw, um, a flyer for our John Sex concert at Limbo Lounge on like Avenue C, which was, I mean, that was it. That was war zone back then. I mean, nobody went to Avenue C. It was like bombed out buildings and everything. But there was a little tiny theater there. And I went to see John Sex. I think I went by myself. And he did this little strip stage on sex. And he was throwing out his clothes into the audience. And I grabbed every single one of the pieces, the the encrusted, the diamond encrusted, or you know, the rhinestone encrusted jock strap, everything. Mm-hmm. And I ran out of the building and ran home with them. And I oh. think I was supposed to give them back to him because apparently. Um, like about a month later, he called my dorm room and he said, is this the person who stole my clothes? Oh, no. And I said, yes. And I don't know how on earth I was in New York a month. I don't know how on earth he found, but somebody, apparently I'd been going around and why you saying, I have John Sex's clothes. And I think I threw a party and put them <laughs> up on, on the wall and made everyone in the dorm come in and look at them and paid $5 to, to see John Sex's jockstrap or something like that. And oh, somehow it got back to John that I had them and he found me. So then, so then I was like, John sex has called me. We're going to be best friends. And I went to return the clothes. And I think I did the same thing to him. And he was just like, who are you? (laughs) Who are you? And give me my clothes back. Uh But in my mind, I was already best friends with John sex and Diane Brill. And I've done what I've come to New York for. Well, you did make an impression. uh, Definitely. (laughs) uh, You know, so, you know, as a, uh, as a club kid or, or, you know, before the club, the term was, Celebutant, darling. Okay, so <laughs> you, you were you were working lots of fabulous looks. So, so I mean, this is probably a question you probably get a lot. But what what were or what or who were some of the inspirations that you took into your looks? Like, was it uh, Hollywood stars? Was it horror movies? Was it everything? Like a mixture of all this stuff or? What inspired well, you know, your looks? It, it was you, you got to remember that it was it was the early '80s. It was like probably '84, '85, and we were still in the era of John uh, of of Boy George, and you know um, uh, people like um, Marilyn and mm. uh, uh, P. 
Pete. Um, uh, Pete Burns, uh, yeah. Pete Burns, of course, and all of the like Ultravox and all all of the mm. even Duran Duran. I mean, all all that stuff and the flock of seagulls. So mm. it was still in that period a little bit, and so I was looking to the club people at the time for inspiration. And the thing is, I realized that um, I needed very much, you know, people like Diane Brill, John Sex. Uh, Terry Toy, um, uh, Wendy Wild, all these people that I was seeing, and even Divine, Grace Jones, uh, you mm. know, people like that, that I, John Waters, everybody had a look that could be very easily identified if you could i if you could reduce it to a pencil sketch you know if you could reduce it if 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 the idea was so sticky that you could get it in two or three lines that meant that it was easily remembered it was it was it was sticky and yeah, i yeah. wanted something like that and i wanted something that was just sort of like an instant you know andy warhol his wig you know some and, right and i didn't really have anything yet and so i figured i was just gonna do I had the long hair. I was going to do red lips, a lunchbox, and heels, and a flashy outfit, and uh, you know, always with the big blonde hair and the and the heels and the red lips. And that's what I thought. And and I, the lunchbox, I think, was the thing that sort of everyone remembers me by. But it was still very much it was gender queer, and it was it was um, it, there was no thought as to male or female dressing. It was just sort of I, I'm going to do a, a little bit of everything. So you are responsible for the lunchbox. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, I am. And the thing about it is, is that when I was growing up, I was never allowed to have a lunchbox going to school. I always had to have hot lunch every day from kindergarten till senior year. I had to eat hot lunch at school every single day. My mother would just throw me the money and say, "No, she didn't want to make me a, a lunch a, a sandwich. It was just go buy your own damn lunch," and that was it so i always was jealous of the kids who had scooby-doo lunch boxes and planet of the apes lunch boxes and i just would look at them longingly every day and say oh i wish i was able to have my own so when i got to so when i got to uh, new york i was like by god i'm gonna carry a lunch box and i got myself a, a campus queen lunch box i found one and i carried it around the nyu campus everywhere i went and so that's how i started carrying and then i started when i would go out at night i would pack little um the play school uh uh um well you know people in them and i would give them all the names i would say this is diane and this is steven saban and this is michael musto and i would when i was bored i would take them out and play with them and everyone i i guess it was a very affect I, it was an affectation it was very annoying <laughs> but uh <laughs> people remember that too <laughs> all right so then so you were a celebrity top, then you were a club kid, then all this stuff happened. You wrote the book Disco Bloodbath, yes. and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it turned into the title Party Monster. Were you okay with them changing the title? Hell no! God uh -huh. damn them! I to this day, <laughs> when I put that on my gravestone, how fucking dare you change the title <laughs> of my book, you sons of bitches! Oh my um, god! And it's funny because um, when. 
it first happened, it happened twice. The movie was, they were be, being made into the movie, okay? Um, and it was, they had, um, I had sold the rights to my book to be made into the movie. And I saw something, it was either in the Variety or the Hollywood Reporter. And it says that Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green have signed on to do the, to do the movie Party Monster. And I went into the office at World of Wonder and I said, oh my God, you guys, this is such good news. I can't believe you hadn't told me yet. And they said, oh, we were just about to tell you. And I said, but look, Hollywood Reporter got it wrong. They called the movie Party Monster. And they both sort of looked at each other and then looked at the ground and then looked oh, at the ceiling uh-huh. and said, oh, huh, isn't that funny? And I went, yeah, I hope they get it right. And they went, oh, uh-huh. And they didn't tell me. And then oh. about a month later, they it, it happened and they said, well, we have to tell you, we've changed the name of the movie. And I went, what? And then after that, they said, James, we have some really good news for you. Your book is being republished and it's going to come out again. And Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. And they showed me where it was said in like oh, Publishers God. Weekly. And it said, it's being reprinted. And the book is coming out. Party Monster is coming out. And they said, and I said, look, Party Monster um, Publishers Weekly got it wrong. <laughs> and they looked at the ground and they looked at the ceiling and they said, oh, well, we haven't told you. And I was like, what? <laughs> so they, not only did they change the name of the movie, but they changed the name of the book. And by God, I got shafted on both. <laughs> oh my God. God. Uh, well, so let's talk about the movie. What? What? How do you think Seth Green did as James St. James? Oh, you know, I, I love Seth Green. I Seth Green, my mini me. He will go. I for, for the rest of my life, I will. I will be forever in debt to him. I love that. I love him so much. Um, you know, both he and Macaulay Culkin. I met them beforehand, and we got to spend time together. And um, uh, uh, Seth. Both Seth and McCulley, for for straight boys, and and they are as straight as they come, they really threw themselves into the role, and they had so much fun doing it, and they had so much love for the source material, and they, um, I, I think, I think Seth really, really loved me as a person, and he would call me. Uh, 10 times a day and say, how do you open a door and how do you sign the check? And how do you like, like trying just to get me down. And he said that he had pictures of me all around his bedroom wall. So that I was the first thing he saw when he woke up in the morning and the last thing he saw when he went to bed. And he said that he would call McCulley as me and uh, McCulley would answer as Michael and they would have conversations pretending to be me and Michael. And so I really appreciated that. And I really, um, they really, and we all toured together after that. We went on press junkets after that, and they really committed themselves to it. And I, I will always be, uh, in love with those two. What did, um, what, so, I mean, you had a, you had a tempestuous relationship with Michael himself. You, you guys were friends, enemies, frenemies, and, and so so much more, right? Right, right, yeah. Did you get a sense of what he thought about the movie, or? Uh... Well, it, it was it was a push me pull me because um, he had to publicly say that he hated every minute of it, and it was everything about it was wrong, and nothing was right, and how dare they, and blah blah blah. But I think he understood that without it. Probably he would be languishing in prison, and no one would have ever heard of him again. Because you have to remember that at the time of the murder, it was—I mean, it was—it was—it was bad, and things were dark, and his name was Mud, and 
um, the whole movement of club kids was sort of looked down upon and people wanted to bury it in the dustbin of history and forget about it. And I think what I was trying to do with the book and the movie and the documentary was to show that for as, as horrible as it all ended, there were some really interesting things in the beginning and there were some really great moments to be taken away from it. And there, it was there was a lot of positivity and a lot of great ideas that should still live on. And it should also be a cautionary tale of what happens, you know, that the, you know, the palace of wisdom isn't on the path to excess and you, that's not necessarily the way to get there. And that, um, uh, you don't, that, I, I don't know. There, there, were, there were a lot of things that I wanted to, to bring forth in the book. So I, I think that Michael recognized that the book was was a good thing for him, although I don't think he could ever you know, publicly admit it. Right. Uh, yeah, so uh, Michael's in prison. He comes out. New York is completely different. Oh, yeah. What do you think? I mean, I, I, I kind of followed him and you know, I communicated with him a little bit, very little bit when he yeah. came out, but, but he was trying to start trying to do stuff. But of course you can't ever really get past the fact that you were involved in murdering somebody and nobody really wants to work with you. I mean, what, what was, did, did you talk to him when he came out of prison or communicate yeah, with him? Yeah. And- um, you know, the thing is when we were talking, when he was in prison, he would write me these letters that were just sort of impassioned pleas from the heart saying, I've changed. I want to rehabilitate myself. I want to rehabilitate my image. I want to give back to the community. When I come out, I want to, I want to be a changed person. I want to do good. I want to be a force for good, blah, blah, blah. And I believed him. And I thought that he really, I, I want to believe in rehabilitation and I want to believe in giving people a second chance. That's yeah. who I am. And so I, I thought I would give him a second chance well he came out and i knew there would be a a time where he wanted to party because he'd been in prison for 17 years and i knew that for six years he was going to go bananas and just go crazy but i thought he would settle down and and try and look for redemption you have to be you have to be redeemed in the public's eye and he wasn't willing to put in the work to do that and he just wanted to go straight back to being club king and there was no way that was going to happen there was no way that the old people or the new people were going to give him a chance unless he showed that he had changed and he wasn't willing to do that he wasn't willing and i would say you know go work for lgbt elder care or or lgbtq teens at risk go go do something with hiv go do something with you know prison reform there's there there are things that you can help at that you might be able to have a voice at that if you just put in the time and do well he went to a soup kitchen but before he went he called page six and said he was going to work in a soup kitchen for a day and oh, like no. i was like no that's not the, that's not what you, you have to go there and do it for a year and then maybe someone will notice that you're doing these things and you'll get credit for it but you don't go and take credit for it just because you that's not the way charity works it's not the way giving back works you have to right. do it from your heart and he just couldn't understand that but he still wanted the recognition for being michael a. like and it was it was frustrating for me because i he had told me all these things about how he changed and then i just never got a chance to see it so you do you think that he was 
ever truly remorseful or sorry about about his involvement in the murder of Angel? Well, that's just it, and that's what I I have to wonder all the time is because was he right. sorry or was he sorry he got caught? You know, right, right, right. And yeah. um, I don't. <clears throat> I don't know. Is he was? It, I truly believe he was a sociopath. I truly mm. believe that he was um, uh, somebody without empathy, really, and a, a supreme narcissist who was um, devoid of certain emotions. And I don't mm. know what the actual um, diagnosis would have been had he been. But 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 I do believe that that there was some some sociopathy there, and I do believe mm. I, I don't know if it was I don't know if he was a psychopath I, I don't know any of that. But he, but yeah, I I, I don't know I I, <laughs> I and I don't yeah. think we'll ever know. Well, uh, I mean, it's it's he, he also came out during a time that, that you know when there's a uh, there's the kind of a revisionist history. People want to look at things. When he died last, uh, it was like Christmas Day. Christmas Day, yeah. Uh, there was this tremendous uh, kind of rush to, uh, you know, people like to paint people as completely bad or completely good. Uh-huh. Or, you know, and, and there's no real uh, middle ground. Like, you know, there's some good in somebody, some bad. But if somebody is, you know, if you're Michael Alec, you're completely bad in, yeah. in the... In, in the in people's in the in the consciousness, the 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 public consciousness, and um, and there was it was a, an angel was a brown queer person who was murdered by this evil entity, yeah, 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 and yeah. Uh, and I I mean I don't it's not quite true, that I mean he wasn't murdered because he was queer and brown he was murdered because he was a drug dealer and Michael Alec was living with him and blah 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 yeah but. But I mean, it was, it, it is true now that Michael was, uh, nobody seemed terribly upset and, and nobody seemed terribly surprised that, no. it, that, that it ended that way for him. No. Uh, were you, did you grieve for him? Yes. I mean, it, you know, it happened. I, I got the call at 5 a.m. on Christmas morning and mm-hmm. 5 a.m. phone calls are never something you want to get because they're always bad news. And I knew when the phone rang at 5 a.m. on Christmas morning that it was bad and I saw who it was from and I knew instantly that Michael was dead. And I was, my initial shock was that I was furious that he did it on Christmas morning. And now I had mm-hmm. to go to four family functions and be oh, happy no. and jolly. <laughs> and and I couldn't really tell anybody about it. And I had to go ho, ho, ho my way through mm. Christmas. And I was like, God damn it. This is just like fucking Michael to do this to me on Christmas day. Mm. And mm. then afterwards I went home and it, um, was it on purpose? Was it a, you know, was it a, I, I, I don't know. You know, Michael had been saying he was going to kill himself every single night for 30 years and I never mm-hmm. paid any attention to it. So why, why this one time? Mm-hmm. Um, I, and it was sad because for everything, for all his flaws and everything, I knew Michael and I had a 30 year friendship that, you know, I mean, you know, Heckle, you know, you know that you, th- there are people in your life that after 10 years, they're just in your life for whatever reason and they're family, you know, yes. mm-hmm. and and you can hate their goddamn guts and they can drive you mi- crazy every minute, but you still pick up the phone and you still will laugh with them about a joke that happened 30 years ago. And you, there's still somebody that that you have the shared history with them. And there is nobody else on the planet that I can make a joke about 
you know, Sally Randall or, or all these, you know, Terry Toy or Anita Sarko or, or something. And you get the joke. Like they're just, there are people in, that we share in the past that I can say, remember in 1987, that party at, on the barge, blah, blah, blah. And he'll know exact. And you were wearing blah, blah, blah. And he knows exactly what I'm talking about. And there are very few people in my life like that. And the circle keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I've lost so many, you know, I lost so many people in the eighties and so many people in the nineties as you did too. To age and then to drug addiction. And then, and then now that I'm getting older, it's starting to happen again because so many of my friends, um, you know, when I was in my 20s, they were in their 30s. So now they're all in their 60s and 70s. And I'm starting to lose those. And the circle just gets smaller and smaller. And he was somebody that was who knew everybody in my life and I've lost him. and, And I'm a little unmoored by it because I don't have those people left you know i mean i i, I could call bunny but dear god <laughs> what oh, happens when you call bunny at three in the morning i don't oh know god. if i'm ready for that to open that mm. can of worms okay well have i mean when when she calls me and and i see in my phone it's lady bunny i i've talked to a lot of people about this I have to literally think, do, am, am I ready to sacrifice an hour of my time exactly. to listen to her and talk about, to listen to her like cat. Her just, barnyard animal noises. Exactly. She's, she, she's going to snort and, and do pig noises for 20 minutes before you can start having the conversation. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so I took you down memory lane and I'm sure that's that stuff you've talked about ad nauseum. You know, you're, <laughs> you, you, you are for, for better or worse. It's like I, Bunny's always going to be associated with Wigstock. I will always be Tranny Shack. You will always be the club kid party it's monster. It's true. It's you know true. what I mean? And um, and so and actually thinking about that, somebody told me a really funny story about you is that whenever kids now, like, you know, kids that do drugs now see, see you out in, in a club, they're like, oh, my God, it's James St. James. I have to do drugs with him. <laughs> and then and then they'll give you a, some big line of K or something. And, and there's, you know, like they, they want to party with, with you. And, and I mean, I think Farron told me that or somebody. It, does that happen to you a lot? Well, where they're it's, like, you know, it's, it's the Sid Vicious syndrome, isn't it? It's like whenever someone would see Sid Vicious, they'd be like, I want to party with you. And so I'll be like, you know, in line at McDonald's or I'll be at 7-Eleven. And some raver kid will come in and be like, dude, is James Angel, you want to bump a K <laughs> you know, and I'll be standing there with my mother or my father or something and I'll be, I have to say well well dear, oh that's very sweet but not right now dear <laughs> <laughs> oh my god what what did you think of the Walt Cassidy Walt Cassidy slash Walt paper book New York Club Kids well Walt of course is somebody that I've known for 30 years and I mm. love 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 Walt and my god mm. the looks that he cooks up but he's just oh, yeah. he's absolutely brilliant and absolutely wonderful um, I was furious that his promotional tool was a lunchbox that said club kids on it. How dare you steal my <laughs> lunchbox idea, you son of a bitch. But um, but the book is fantastic. And you know, when I did um Disco Bloodbath, I went to them and I said, Oh, when I want I want, you know, like 30 pages of pictures and blah blah blah. And they didn't want any pictures in the book. And they said that um they thought that the book stood alone as uh, you know, the, the text stood on itself and it didn't need pictures. And they were very adamant about that. They didn't want it to be taken seriously as a, as a 
true crime novel as opposed to like a yearbook for the club kids. And so I was very disappointed that there was that there weren't pictures in my book. And he was here is a book, a coffee table book with just that's just loaded with a million pictures. And he tells the story from such an interesting perspective. And he was able to do a lot of the context around the club kids in a lot of, you know, the, the, the ballroom scene in the house of fields and, and Jackie 60 and pyramid and uh, you know, area and palladium and everything that were before that I wasn't able to concentrate on in my book because my book really was just a story of my relationship with Michael and the club kids. So I thought that his book was amazing in that it was able to give such a nuanced and detailed version of the New York club scene during that period in its entirety. Yeah. There, there, there's also a book called The Last Party. Do you remember? Oh, is that Anthony read- Hayden Guest? Yes, and that's yes. that's an amazing that's an amazing book about the evolution of New York so nightlife. It sort of takes it more from the art scene perspective and mm-hmm. um, the sort of Jay McInerney, uh, uh, Brett Easton Ellis point of view. Anthony Hayden Guest is a longtime journalist um, who. Uh, is a longtime presence on the New York club scene, and he's he's an amazing man. If you ever get a chance to talk to him, just uh, just a font of wisdom. He's fantastic, and we had um, lunch with him two or three times, I think, as he was write, writing it. And so, and that was right before the murder happened. And then he was able to use our luncheon as a tie into a chapter. Mm, well, yeah, the book was incredible about yeah, yeah, yeah just it's how, fantastic. Uh, okay, so let's let's talk about your podcast about New York nightlife. What's it called, and what's and and, and who have you had on it? Who you can have on it? Um, it's it's called Night Fever, and it's New York nightlife legends of the seventies, eighties, nineties, and beyond. And it's um it's very fun. We've just wrapped up the first season. We've we've taped them all, and we are. I'm getting into the edit bay and start starting to work on it. Um, it goes. Diane Brill, Michael Musto, Peter Gation, Lisa Edelstein, Lisa E, Lisa, Lisa Edelstein mm-hmm. from, you know, uh, who is a great friend of mine and she was an it girl. And now she's on, you know, House and mm-hmm. Kaminsky Method and Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. Um, uh, let me see. Michael Musto, Lisa Edelstein, Walt Paper, Ernie Glam, Moby, Louis Extravaganza from, you know, Madonna's Vogue video and Truth or Dare, um, Rudolph. Uh, Johnny, uh, Joey Arias, and I know I'm forgetting somebody. Uh, I don't know, but we had we had ten people on, it and and everybody is from a sort of a different era and different part. And it's it's just it's um, we've been having a lot of fun with it. Those are some great names, and uh, you know, Louis is my—he's like my neighbor now in Palm Springs. Is he? Oh, yeah. Louis is so much fun. It was so great reconnecting with him because, and the the funny thing on the on the show, um, we're talking, and I was saying, you know, I had a um a boy that I was living with at the time that I was very in love with, and he was obsessed with you, and that's all he talked about. And later, you know, and then when we broke up, and he left, and his name was Onyx, and he said, Onyx, Onyx was my boyfriend for ten. 10 years and i was like that <laughs> son of a bitch he stalked you from my living room and oh then went God. and got you and so it's, it's very funny like the the people we all share in common and that we all do just sort of hand around the same boys time and again oh yeah well he's yeah he's living the palm springs life now i mean oh, and he's such yeah. a, still just as handsome and as fu- beautiful as you i mean just what a great character just what a wonderful person he is yeah he's a very he's a real sweetheart um uh, can you so are you doing your world of wonder makeover show still transformations is that on hiatus 
It is. Well, it's yeah. It's, it's a little on sort of permanent hiatus, I think. Um, I did it for what seven years, and I really I had so much fun doing it. And I started doing it because there was a need for it, and there was nothing out there on the internet like it. And I, the idea of having drag queens come in and do their look on me, and that was sort of it was. I wanted it to be a talk show, but a talk show where they you know did something, and so I I got people in that had different looks and different, you know, characters. And um, at the time on Drag Race, I wanted it to be a sort of an alternative to Drag Race because I loved what Drag Race was doing in it. I thought it was very important. But Drag Race had a very much, very polished aesthetic and very much cookie cutter, um, pretty girls and showgirls is what they did. Right. And it wasn't until Sharon Needles, I think, you know, and Milk and people like that sort of came on and shook things up. But I wanted to have people like Squeaky From on. I wanted to have Matthew Squeaky Anderson From? Come. Oh, God, yes. I mean, you know, I love, I mean, talk about nuts. You know, I wanted to have the the people like that. On. I wanted to have like, you know, Ridge Gallagher. I wanted to have. You mean um, Squeaky Blonde? Oh yeah! Oh, Squeaky From! Ah! Oh my God! Oh my God! I wanted to have Squeaky From on my show, so I got her out of jail. And I what kind of on. what kind of makeover would that be? An oh my X, God! You just maybe an just... X carved into your forehead. <laughs> squeaky blonde! Oh yes. my God! You, I just totally had a I had an Alzheimer moment there. I just had an old person moment. I, I wanted Squeaky Blonde on this show. Okay. I wanted nuts like that on the show who could come on and just do things that would blow people's mind and i scoured the internet i scoured instagram and i found people that i thought were outside of the box and i wanted people to come in and see the different things you could do with drag that you know very much in the in the in you know it, you know uh, yeah like of course Tranny Shake, you know mm -hmm. uh, and boulet brothers and all that stuff i, I had the boulet brothers on long before they had their show i wanted to have like that type of stuff on there so that that people could see that there was so much more to drag the kids and and i did it and now everybody in the world has their show where they have the drag queens on and they do their makeup on them and everybody acts like they've just discovered it and you know i i remember there was a certain personality makeup personality who said i've got an idea what if i have drag queens on the show and they do their look on my face what do you guys think of that and i was like oh for fuck's sake and i remember willem said or someone said, like Willem does. And Willem came on wrote and said, you know, I stole it from James St. James. And everybody steals from everybody. So, but at least let's give people credit. And so right. I, I think that I did it. And I sort of made my point. And now everybody in the world has, uh, you know, a bloody antlers coming out of their head. And, and Oh, I know. Um, I know. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't think there's really a need for transformations anymore. Because everybody in the world is, is an Instagram star with a billion looks. And nothing's, nothing's shocking anymore. Nothing shocking and nothing is new and mm -hmm. unfortunately it's the same thing you know with clubs and i, I sometimes worry that the in this world where the minute you put an idea out there, it can circle the globes 10 times in an hour that nothing has the chance to incubate like it used to. You know, it took, you know, punk like three years at CBGB's before any, the, you know, the media picked up on it, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't think that anything has the chance to incubate for three years and, and polish itself up for three years before the media. I, I don't think that can happen anymore. And I don't think ideas get a chance to ferment and just, just, um, uh, Right, uh, like gestate the way they used to. Well, I, th I think by the time the punk was discovered, then th they were bored with the th three chords, and they moved on to post punk. 
exactly. You know, like the, 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 and yeah. then new wave had started, yeah, and then exactly. you know all that, yeah. So and then new um, romantic, and you know, all that stuff, whatever. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, things keep moving on, and I totally get it. But I, I mean, I, I definitely don't want to be grandma going nothing. No, and no, I, and there is no way sucks. I want to ever go back to that. I don't ever right. want to go back because because I love the speed at which things move, and I love mm-hmm. the fact that every, the world is a completely different. I, I love that we're in a new timeline every time I wake up. You know, right? I, I think that's fantastic, but. But I think that the the way um, uh, things grow has changed, and I I, I think that um, I, I don't think we get as much. I, I don't know. I just yeah, I don't no. know. It, it's the it's true. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, it is so. It's it's all flash in the pan these days. Um, <laughs> are, are there any other projects you want to let our listeners know about? What else is going on with you? Oh God, we've been chatting forever. I didn't even realize it. Um, Oh, you want to get rid of me? Uh, I, I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm not. I'm nothing. I'm sure up. I'm dying, and we hang up, and that's the end of me. <laughs> <laughs> there is. I. Um. You know. I. I wrote a book about 20 years ago. Um. Uh. About my family, which is a whole other podcast, and um. Uh. And I have been sitting on it, and I need to revisit it. I went back and looked at it, and it comes from, uh, what I wrote. Three fourths of it was really great, and then one fourth of it is just snotty, entitled white privilege brat. And I, I realized that I there's so much that I need to change, and I, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm revisiting that, and I'd like, to, I would like to get that out before I die. Um, right, right. And then I have, you know, uh, you know, James, you know, guide to life, James, 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 the wit and wisdom of James, James. I have that locked and loaded. I have, um. Uh, you know, a book on glamour and and fame, and I, I I have other things, and I there's also ed books I'd like to edit. They're 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 life stories I'd like to tell of other people and and things. So yes, I have a lot in the line, but I don't have an agent. If you have a second, I'm just I had an agent, and then he disappeared like off the face of the earth. Oh and wow! He um like he went he had all there he had a whole list of clients, and none of us could find him for like two years, and we all kept saying what happened to him, what happened to him. And apparently he um, got addicted to meth and became homeless. And someone saw him naked in a park uh, talking to himself. Uh, oh, so so that was my so that was my literary agent. And so now I don't have any <laughs> I don't have any representation anymore. And so I'm just sort of a, a standing on a street corner saying book to sale, book for sale. I got a book idea here. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you really do have a fascinating perspective and a, a, from, from a fascinating era of nightlife and, you know, and queer nightlife. And I think, so I, I will say that, you know, I was, somebody called me about Alaska's book they were putting out. Mm. They, mm-hmm. they, they were asking me questions about it and they said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And so I'm kind of, I'm starting to write a oh, book right please, now too. But yes. But this publisher, I, I'll, I'll send you his information uh, uh-huh. in a PM. Uh, after after we finish taping this, um, but yes, I, I think you would have. I really think you that you have so much more to tell. Than oh, just, oh yeah. heck, oh you know. Yeah. And the thing is, like, you know, um, I you know because like I said, I have I have like four or five books just in in my computer just ready mm-hmm. to go. But the thing is, if every day you sit down and write a thousand words, if every day I, I just write them on on a yellow legal pad in hand, if you put a thousand words down a day in in two months, you have a book that's sixty thousand words and sixty thousand words is books. If you just write a thousand words, a day, and it doesn't have to be good, you just have to because. 
writing is rewriting. And all, if you just have 60,000 words, if you have a book, then you go in and rewrite it and make it fabulous. But just get it out of your head. Just every single day, write something down. And I write it out of order. I just have a list of the stories I want to tell that have to end up in the book. I write them all out of order and then figure out the order later and smash it all together. But uh, yeah. But yeah, I, if I every mean, day yeah. I just write a story down, then in two months I have a whole book, you know, and and remember that. Just make sure you write every single day and you will have a book in a couple months. Thank you, because next to my computer I have this note, finish writing your proposal because they want to propose it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I just oh, yeah. keep, I keep not doing it. So, well, um, But the thing is, because the, the worst thing is, is when you're writing is that first page or that first chapter because you're like, ugh, I, well, I don't want to go back that. So I, like I said, I have a list of everything. And then every day you look at the list and you say, oh, well, I can, I don't want to deal with any of that other shit, but I can tell that story or I can do that one. And you just point to the one thing that interests you that day and you write it down and you put it you type it up and you got it in your book you put it in the book and you have that one done and so then some then finally you're like okay i can go to page one when you've done everything else don't write in order whatever you do all right words and now of i've wisdom. talked for three hours no words of <laughs> this is words of wisdom from jane same jane's oh uh -huh. wait one more important question final yeah. question okay what is your favorite memory of hecklina since this, is, <laughs> since, since this is drag time with Hecklina. I'd have to say, of all my memories of Hecklina, I'd have to say this afternoon, speaking with you has been my favorite <laughs> memory of all. Because, <laughs> because you don't remember anything. <laughs> no, I do remember. I came up for a book reading one time to San Francisco, and you were, you were so wonderful, and you took me around the city that day, and we had lunch, and we had dinner, and we, you took me to the book reading, and then we went out that night. And I remember just, I remember spending a day with you and it was a really just a wonderful, wonderful day that we had. And that more than any of the times I've seen you out or anything like that, I like, I like that when you just have one-on-one -on -one time with someone and you just get to spend it with them and everything. So yes, well, me too. Well, thank you. you. Thank you. Okay. Well, so if, if you want to find James St. James online, he can be found on Instagram at James St. James one. Twitter, JSJ Darling, and at wowpresents.com. Um, thank you. Oh, oh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Hecklina. If you love us, please show it. Subscribe to the show. Like us, rate us, and please tell anybody you can about the podcast, Drag Time with Hecklina. Finally, thank you so much, Jane St. James. Well, thank you for having me, and I'm going to sing the song. <laughs> I'm going to sing your theme song <laughs> as we go out because it's so catchy. I love it. <laughs> All right, and thank you, Mark.